0: Hi, and welcome to In Search of Insight, Nootropics Depot's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Erica, or Nootropics Depot guru on Reddit, and sitting next to me is our product specialist, Emil.
1: Hey, everyone, and you can find me on Reddit under Pretty Chill.
0: Today, Emil and I are going to be talking about a fascinating topic, something that we all experience uh, sometimes daily, but hopefully a little bit less than that often a very unifying and uh, big human experience, which is pain. And we're going to be talking about the mechanisms and pathways of pain in the body. We're going to be talking about different kinds of pain and also how our mental state has a significant impact on the way that we perceive pain and threats to our physical and you know emotional states and the kinds of pain that that can cause. We're also going to be talking about how supplementation can help us manage pain, both acutely and also on more of a long-term basis as well. This is a really fascinating and very broad topic, so I'm excited to be getting into it today.
1: Me too. This is definitely a topic that I'm personally very interested into.
0: Now, before we jump into this conversation for today, we are going to discuss... New product releases! These are products that we have released since the last podcast episode was launched, and this month we have two new products to discuss. The first one is our Quick Dissolve Super B12 tablets. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with other B12 supplements and you might be taking them already, but I'm excited that we, Newtropics Depot, finally have a B12 tablet offering.
1: Yeah, and we've always had a solution, our super B12 solution. This was from way back in the day, even with Ceratropic. So this is one product we brought over from Ceratropic when that closed down. And it's basically a combination, a 50-50 combination of hydroxocobalamin and methylcobalamin. Those are two of the most bioavailable forms of B12. And we have them at dosages of a half milligram each. So the total dose is one milligram. This was always designed as a a dropper bottle solution that you would kind of drop under your tongue, let it sit there for a little while, take advantage of the sublingual and buccal um, absorption, and then swallow the liquid. But when you travel, or some people just don't like using solutions, but especially when you travel and you're an airplane, solutions can leak, and this is a somewhat brightly colored solution because vitamin B12 is purple. So it's not an ideal thing to travel with, but people really like having it while they're traveling. So we thought, why not put it in a tablet and make it a quick dissolve tablet so you can let it dissolve in your mouth, and then you basically have the Super B12 solution in your mouth. But now you can carry around tablets rather than a solution. So this is way more travel friendly or just a better overall option if you don't like using solutions.
0: Awesome. And what are some of the reasons why I might be interested in supplementing B12 if I don't know a whole lot about it, or I'm not currently taking a different B12 product.
1: Well, you specifically would be interested in taking a B12 product because you don't eat a lot of meat. That's true. I'm mostly vegetarian. Yeah. And it's the same for me. I don't eat a whole lot of meat. Your main source of b12 is from meat your body itself can produce b12 and plants don't really produce vitamin b12 in high enough quantities that if you are on a mostly plant-based diet you are not getting your b12 in high enough quantities and that's really not good because b12 is really important especially in your central nervous system so it's involved in energy uh, levels and cognitive function. so if you start losing b12 that's not good and a lot of vegans and vegetarians and likely erica and i we are all a little bit deficient in b12 because we don't have a lot of meat or animal products within our diet For those people, supplementing with B12 and especially a really high quality B12, so uh, vitamin B12 can exist in a few different forms. We have hydroxylcobalamin and methylcobalamin in ours. You also have cyanocobalamin and this is one of the most common forms of vitamin B12 that you see in over-the-counter supplements, just something you would pick up in Walmart. This is the cheapest form of vitamin B12, which is why it is most often utilized as a supplement. However, it doesn't absorb really well, and it can't get integrated into the cells and the processes where B12 is needed. The the stark contrast there then is with methylcobalamin and hydroxocobalamin, which can do that and can increase vitamin B12 levels quite significantly and exert vitamin B12 benefits. Then you also have adenosylcobalamin, which you don't see as often, and part of the reason is it's actually really expensive. I think it's one of the most expensive forms of vitamin B12, and there really aren't a whole lot of benefits of this form when compared to methylcobalamin and hydroxocobalamin. But if you are trying to correct a deficiency, which as a vegetarian or vegan you probably have, you want the most highly absorbable form of vitamin B12 because you actually have a higher need for more B12 in your system. And I think for those people, a product like Super B12, and especially if you use it by letting it kind of melt underneath your tongue, and then swishing it around your mouth for a few minutes before swallowing it, you can absorb much higher levels of B12, and this will likely have positive effects on your mood, your energy levels, um, maybe even your your exercise capabilities. And I think for me personally, when I started taking vitamin B12, the one thing I really noticed is an uptick in energy levels. And I clearly notice when I don't take my vitamin B12, my energy levels are more down. And I think Eric and I, we've both been taking vitamin B12 for years. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's kind of our baseline and when we fall from that and then start up B12 again we notice this energy effect but it does mean for someone that has very adequate vitamin B12 levels The effects aren't going to be very noticeable, but maintaining higher than normal levels of vitamin B12 can also be beneficial when you think of metabolism and just general cognitive function, so it can still be interesting for meat eaters. uh, Especially because we don't really know exactly what the vitamin B12 content is of the meat we're eating, so having some extra b12 in your diet could be interesting there but this product is mostly interesting i think for vegans and vegetarians and meat eaters that just simply don't eat a whole lot of meat which honestly i think is the majority of meat eaters because meat is quite expensive so you can't afford to most people at least for myself i can't necessarily afford to eat big steaks every day so i think for the overall population even meat eaters probably aren't eating enough meat to satisfy those b12 levels which for sure and even
0: with people who may eat a fair amount of meat products on a daily basis like you're saying we don't know what the vitamin content of that meat is at all and if we're talking about fast food and uh, the various chicken products and different kinds of ground meats that are being served. Well, we interestingly do necessarily enough, know.
1: Interestingly enough, I think vitamin B12 is higher in organ meats and huh. considering that maybe a lot of fast food products are bits and pieces of organ meat and kind of scraps maybe actually there is higher b12 levels i'd, I'd be kind of curious to interesting to see that.
0: yeah maybe someone on reddit if you want uh to do a little bit of a research project is there more b12 in fast food ground meats than there is in single cuts of meat would you like to share it on our weekly wednesday research study discussion thread if so just throwing that out there for anyone who's very curious about this All right, but back to our new product releases. So we have one more product to discuss today, which we've released in the last month, and that is ClaryMag. Now, ClaryMag is an interesting product because it's a optimized magnesium stack that has some extra uh, ingredients in there um, that are designed to promote mental clarity and feelings of well-being, and kind of round out the benefits that magnesium has on our cognition and mental state. So Emil, will you tell us a little bit more about ClaryMag, uh, the ingredients that are in it, and basically why it's going to benefit someone who's looking for a slightly more hmm, premium magnesium supplement for their everyday?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as the name indicates too, Clare Mag, one of the things we wanted to do here is improve the mental clarity effect of magnesium. For anyone that's ever taken magnesium, especially one of the first times you take magnesium, you might notice a distinct sense of mental clarity. And this is likely, again, because a lot of people are deficient in magnesium. So when you take magnesium for the first time, likely what you're experiencing is a correction of that deficiency, similar with vitamin B12 in vegans and vegetarians. The interesting thing there is that the mental clarity effect likely is coming from the fact that magnesium is used to maintain NMDA signaling strength. So when a lot of magnesium is present, it takes more effort to activate NMDA receptors. So in that sense, magnesium acts as a mild NMDA blocker. And this can have very positive effects for mental clarity, overall cognitive function, and actually, as we'll talk about later in this podcast, for pain. So one thing we wanted to improve on here is how can we make the NMDA receptor blockade effect a little bit more pronounced without necessarily adding in new layers of effects. This proved to be kind of challenging because a lot of the things that interact with NMDA receptors have pretty pronounced effects. Uh, So one big one that came to mind was Polygala. Polygala is a good NMDA blocker, but it also increases dopamine levels quite significantly and norepinephrine levels, and it has neuroplasticity effects, and it has GABAergic effects, so it has a pretty complex effects profile. But when we were beta testing, I I did think maybe this is one we, we need to try out. So we tried it at half the normal dose at 50 milligrams, and here it actually produced an effect that, to me, felt somewhat similar to one of the first times I took magnesium. So I didn't get the full effect profile of polygala, but that mental, subtle mental clarity that I got from magnesium was there. So when we combined magnesium with polygala, the the two together seemed to produce even more mental clarity. And this was felt amongst a few beta testers. So then we tried to add another compound in, Agmatine. So, agmatine is a a derivative of the amino acid L-arginine, and it exists endogenously in the body, and it too blocks NMDA receptors. Um, It too has pretty pronounced effects, so we also wanted to keep the dose low on this one. So, with the low dose of agmatine together with the low dose of polygala and the full dose of magnesium that we wanted, the effect... Really dialed in that mental clarity aspect without detracting from the kind of neutral character of effects with magnesium. On top of that, we also added a very small amount of vitamin C and vitamin D. Vitamin C metabolizes into a compound called threonic acid, which, if you've ever taken Magtein, you might recognize because Magtein is magnesium L-threonate, and this is the threonic acid. That's the L-threonate portion of it what l l threonic acid does is it increases um, magnesium levels in the brain and this is one of the reasons why magtine has such a cognitively enhancing effect it's kind of hard to find threonic acid so we decided to actually add in a little bit of vitamin c because threonic acid is a vitamin c metabolite so a little bit of vitamin c in there that should metabolize the threonic acid and that should then help increase magnesium stores in the brain. Vitamin D was added because vitamin D actually helps enhance the absorption of magnesium even further. So which by the way we haven't even talked about the two forms of magnesium that are in here, which are also pretty special. So we have the micromag, which is a sucrosomial ester, so it's kind of like a liposome or if you don't know what a liposome is, it's kind of like a sphere where you can load materials into and then when you take them when you take them orally your body recognizes the outer material rather than the active material that's loaded inside and this really comes in handy with magnesium because your body doesn't necessarily like to absorb magnesium there's a lot of blocks in place to make sure that magnesium levels are nice and contained which is also one of the reasons why Uh, magnesium can actually act as a really good laxative because it's your body trying to dispel it and it not absorbing. But that does mean that if you want to really increase magnesium levels significantly you need some different pathways of getting it to where it needs to be. So utilizing a sucrosomial ester where your body is recognizing the sucrosomial ester rather than the magnesium can get it further and quicker into cells than just taking magnesium oxide for example would and it's actually magnesium oxide which is within the sucrosomal ester. So if you just took normal magnesium oxide it wouldn't absorb really well but you put it in the sucrosomal ester and it does. So that's one of the really novel and interesting magnesium forms that's in there and it's honestly probably one of the best ones out there because it also doesn't really carry with it many other additional effects which the other form of magnesium that is in there does so this is magnesium glycinate and this is a chelate which means that the magnesium is uh, complexed with a amino acid and in this case that amino acid is glycine so magnesium glycinate absorbs quite well. Uh, One of the reasons why magnesium oxide doesn't absorb really well is because when high concentrations of it are present in the intestines, which you need to get the levels that we want, then the pH levels in your intestines change. And when the pH levels change, the absorption of magnesium significantly slows down. When you chelate magnesium and glycine, glycine being a really good uh, pH buffer, it's actually used in a lot of different experiments as a pH buffer too, because it buffers pH, it prevents this pH-mediated decrease in magnesium absorption. And in addition to this, normally magnesium would have two binding sites on either side, and this can bind with things in our diet like phytic acid. And when phytic acid binds to these binding sites of magnesium, then magnesium can't absorb as efficiently. So when we occupy these binding sites with glycine, then phytic acid can't bind to it because it's already occupied and the glycine helps it absorb better. So these are two really interesting and novel forms of magnesium that are in there that will really help enhance your magnesium concentrations especially when it gets further boosted by the absorption gets further boosted by vitamin D and we get the threonic acid from the vitamin C and then some of the extra NMD and activity with um, the polygala and the agmatine and interestingly enough glycine also interacts with the nmda receptor so it uh, acts as a co if glycine is there then actually the nmda receptor can get activated more easily so it does seem like maybe it's a little bit contradictory then but what we're really trying to achieve here with the mental clarity effects and the cognitive effects too is that when you're blocking nmda signaling then the NMDA receptors can increase in density a little bit, which means that there's more NMDA receptors. Mm -hmm. And then when glycine is there, it means that when NMDA receptors are needed, glycine will help facilitate that activity. And this is important because NMDA activation is one of the core uh, mechanisms within long-term potentiation, which is how we store the majority of our memories. So we need this... NMDA activity. And it's kind of interesting then that blocking NMDA receptors can have this mental clarity effect and part of this is also because enhancing NMDA functioning also um, changes calcium levels and calcium influences how our neurons work and actually also influences how pain works so we will talk about this more later. But there's a pretty complex interaction happening here where we want to actually balance the NMDA receptor activation and blockade. And because normally magnesium is blocking the the NMDA channel and the NMDA channel has to get activated so strongly that the magnesium is dispelled from the channel, that's normally how it works. So when you have magnesium in there, it just makes it so that It is harder for the NMDA receptor to get activated, but if it gets activated and glycine is there, then that activation is quite strong and fast, and this will help with long-term potentiation, cognitive function, mental clarity, can help with tolerance to certain things like caffeine, so pretty interesting mechanism, and something we were all able to package into ClareMag, mostly honestly because this is a product all of us at the office were interested in ourselves, because... We all take magnesium and it, it's probably one of the most taken supplements around the to office and pretty much everyone benefits from it.
0: Wow. So if you were thinking, oh, I'll just pick up this simple, no biggie magnesium product. Well, there's a little bit more than you bargained for in an amazing way because it sounds like this is the ideal choice for someone who's looking for a magnesium supplement, but also just a very, very well-rounded, everyday magnesium plus a little bit of extra mental clarity type of supplement.
1: Yeah, if I were to really distill the effects as as simply as possible, this is the magnesium you want to take if you want to feel your magnesium.
0: And that's a really great segue into the body of what we're going to be talking about in today's podcast, which is pain. Um, And one reason why I'm very excited to talk about this topic, is because of the really complex and interesting things that happen when we try to describe our physical feelings, the sensations that our bodies get, and we put them into words, and we try to relate to others, and we try to understand what sensations are through language and through learning about processes. And this is something we're going to be doing today as we talk about pain. And I'm not a person who experiences chronic pain, um, but I've had my fair share of injuries, and I've had some stress-related injuries. Um, So I am familiar with some of the kind of bigger categories of pain, one of them being nerve pain. This is a feeling that I'm actually quite familiar with, Um, whereas some other people may have more familiarity with pain related to uh, tissue injuries, or bone breaks, or even headaches, for example. Um, There are some really obvious causes for pain, you know, injury, and there can also be some less obvious causes for pain, stress, inflammation, repetitive stress. But we're going to be talking about pain and its mechanisms in the body, where pain actually comes from and how it works, and then how supplements might be able to help us manage it and understand the processes of pain better.
1: Yeah, pain is a, is a fascinating topic, and it's especially fascinating because if you really look at why we perceive pain it's directly related to how we just sense the world around us and this is because we sense pain because of nociception and let's let's make this distinction early on in the podcast so we're not confused by this later but when we talk about pain this is a subjective experience is what we make of it pain doesn't necessarily exist it's a nociceptive signal that exists so for example let's keep this really simple for now I I take um hot tap water for example like the hottest your tap can go which in some places is around 50 degrees celsius which at that point if you put your hands under 50 degrees celsius water you will go ow I feel pain this doesn't feel nice But what actually happened is that when I put my hands under this 50 degree water, the TRPV1 receptors get activated. And when these get activated, it sends a signal to my brain. And the way my brain translates this and makes sense of it is it goes, oh, that's hot, it's dangerous, get your hands out of there, ouch. So then we interpret that as, oh, that was pain, that hurt, I shouldn't do that again. So pain doesn't necessarily exist, it's that nociceptive signal, and we'll be talking a lot about that nociceptive signal, and how we get those nociceptive signals, and also how that then underlies how we sense the world around us, because TRPV1 receptors get activated at different levels of heat, so we can if we touch something that's slightly warm and we notice that it's slightly warm it's because similar receptors are getting activated just at lower temperatures and similarly if i put an ice cube on my arm i can feel that it's cold and if i leave it there for a little while it will start to hurt and this is because i am activating the trpm8 receptor with cold those receptors get activated at colder levels so it helps in normal circumstances sense the world around us we can sense different temperatures of things with touch but in the extremes it produces pain so TRPV1 activated into the extremes will produce feelings of pain TRPM8 receptors activated into the extremes will cause pain
0: but. I'm guessing that where you're going with this is that the receptors that allow us to perceive pain, um, in this case, because of extreme temperatures, are also the same kind of receptors that allow us to just perceive the sensation of more pleasant temperatures, slightly cooler or slightly warmer.
1: Well, they're not just some the same kind of receptors; they are the exact same receptors a single trpv1 receptor could go oh yeah and that feels pleasantly warm and it can also tell you ow, oh, that really hurts get your hand out of there so it can exist on a a bit of a scale there so at different temperature levels but then you have a lot of different ones like you have trpv1 trpv2 trpv3 trpv4 i think there's a trpv5 i'm not sure how high they go up but each one gets activated at different temperatures. So I believe TRPV-4 receptors get activated more around the maybe 30 degrees Celsius range. Um, and you have different cold receptors too. But it's this collection of heat and cold receptors and mechanoreceptors. So that was
0: going to be my next question. What about pressure? Like the difference between someone putting their hand on your shoulder versus punching you?
1: yeah so this is where it gets really interesting too we're already starting to differentiate between different types of sensation touching sensing the world but we are also already detecting different types of pain so we have temperature-based pain receptors like trpm8 are involved uh, and trpv1 are involved in normal amounts we can sense different temperatures around us in the world in more intense levels, we can detect pain, whether that is we're about to get frostbite or we are going to get burned.
0: Or if you live in Arizona, you leave the house in the middle of the summer and you immediately feel this uh, sense of pain. It is so painfully hot outside, but that's actually more real now that we're having this conversation for me than
1: i ever knew it was yes because sometimes when we walk out just straight into the bright sun in the middle of the day on on one of the hottest days of the summer it can be well above 40 degrees celsius I think the hottest I've ever maybe experienced this here is close to 48 degrees Celsius, which at that point, your TRPV1 receptors are getting activated because I believe they get activated right at around 45 degrees Celsius, which on a really unlucky hot day in Phoenix, you probably can experience 45 degrees Celsius, especially when you're standing in the intense summer sun.
0: So if you've ever wanted to know what it feels like to be enveloped in pain, come to phoenix (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: and 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 it's a really interesting experience to be honest i think everyone should experience just like everyone should experience full body submersion into really cold temperatures and just stay there for a while don't just do a little dip stay there for five minutes and see how it changes so uh, let's actually talk about this for a second in january i had an experience like this Uh, i was in seattle and decided to go for a swim uh, so it's a bit of a Dutch tradition on New Year's uh, New Year's Day you go jump into the cold ocean so I wanted to replicate that here and I jumped into a, a cold lake or uh, inlet I think yeah it was the water was salty um, and I think the water temperature was around 45 Fahrenheit I'm actually not sure what that is in Celsius, but it was pretty cold, and I stayed in for five minutes. The first 30 seconds or so are, are quite painful. I think all of the TRPM8 receptors are getting activated. Uh, you have the uh, voltage-gated sodium, uh, so the NAV1.8 receptors are getting quite activated at this point. They, they also are important for cold sensing. So it's really intense for about 30 seconds. Then at the minute mark, that kind of starts to fade away. And it's actually because those receptors are getting stimulated so strongly, they are desensitizing. So then after about five minutes, the cold, painful feeling goes away. And it's actually almost like a pain-reliefing effect because this thing that can cause pain normally... Um, un, under certain conditions which we'll talk about later because because one of the things that underlies pain is actually plasticity uh, more of these receptors coming in and then getting hypersensitivity and then even though there is no cold or heat in, in inflamed areas we are feeling these sensations but here it's interesting that it, I went in feeling a little bit sore in my shoulders I had I'd flown a couple days before and that always kind of messes me up a little bit because I'm tall Um, So then getting in the water, at first, everything hurts more. And then everything starts to hurt less. And then you just don't feel anything. It's complete analgesia all over your body. And then you start to regain certain tingly sensations. And then when you get out, it's it's kind of the opposite thing happens. And you feel really hot almost on your skin, even though the air temperature is cold. So... This is a a pretty extreme example of what happens, but it's quite interesting to notice. And it's interesting to experience the opposite in Phoenix, where you walk out into the open air and you get hit by this wave of superheated wind. And it just takes your breath away, kind of.
0: Yeah, it it takes your breath away, and it also takes the moisture out of your mouth. And sometimes it feels like it takes the moisture out of your skin, too. Um, And it's really a fascinating experience. as long as you don't have to be outside in it for extended amounts of time, of course.
1: Yeah, because, of course, extended amounts of time at, at high temperatures, then, you know, our body temperature starts to go up and we get hyperthermia. And then a lot of bad stuff happens there, which makes sense why we have so many heat sensors, too. So so these are the, the two um, temperature-related senses and Pains, which we'll come back to later, and then you have mechanical. So, like Erica was saying, if I just press on on my shoulder, I can feel that, and it's because these mechanoreceptors are getting activated. And some of these actually are similar vanilloid type receptors, like the TRPV1 receptor. So, for example, the TRPV4 receptor, which we talked about quite extensively in the Andrographis podcast too. That TRPV4 receptor um responds to uh, pressure so mostly because of cells that are swelling or or blood pressure and things like that so it can detect that mechanical sensation so you have a lot of these mechanoreceptors that can yeah if i press on my shoulder i can feel that if erica now were to punch me in my shoulder that would be a much more intense experience mostly because those mechanoreceptors are getting activated to a higher degree and maybe even you burst some some mast cells or something and some histamines are coming free and now i'm gonna get a lot of uh, inflammation there i've burst some bruising. blood vessels bruising yeah um and and that's when you get into something called the i really like this name actually the inflammatory soup
0: that is it's kind of great i mean it reminds me a little bit of the news but that that is something we will not get into
1: (laughs) and actually when you when you attempt to google inflammatory soup you just get a bunch of soup recipes (laughs) that are claiming to be anti-inflammatory but the inflammatory soup when we think of inflammation it's usually a lot of different compounds being excreted around nociceptors, and these nociceptors are these these nerve endings that contain a lot of these TRPV1, TRPM8, um, sodium, uh, yeah, voltage-gated sodium channels, voltage-gated calcium channels. They all exist there, and they can sense this nociceptive signal and then you can interpret it as pain but when we get in inflammation we get a lot of these compounds like the interleukins uh, some of the cytokines tumor necrosis factor alpha Uh, we get them all being excreted around these nociceptive um, receptors and this can actually increase the sensitivity then of things like trpv1 so think about it like this if you've ever had a sunburn there's not a whole lot of injury per se but there's a lot of inflammation happening and when you take a warm shower with a big sunburn that pleasant otherwise pleasant warm water now feels extremely rough on your skin it's quite painful and it's because due to that inflammatory soup all of these sensors are way turned up they're way more sensitive so what was normally benign warm water now is signaling hey this hurts you need to get this off this is dangerous and it's not it's the same temperature but because but
0: it's a fascinating protective mechanism that our bodies have to basically tell us hey we've got to leave this alone and let some healing happen because we don't want, you know, whether it's hot water or we don't want, you know, hard or rough objects in this area, like we need to protect this, we need to keep things away from this area.
1: Absolutely. So, and, and that's really what happened. It's kind of a protective thing. So... Another real-world example I can talk about is recently I ordered a mandolin slicer. Um, I've been told by many people, including my parents, uh, that I should be really careful with them because you can slice off your fingertips. And, you know, I always took it seriously until I got my own one and then was really excited and decided to just cut up a couple of slices of uh, chili pepper. And then I got really into it and because it felt so nice so nice and sharp and then i felt something a little bit of an electrical s- stimulation but nothing too intense and i thought "Ha, oh, that's weird and then i looked down and i had like a a, a squirt gun uh, oh, just no. blood i was just <laughs> blood everywhere and oh no and and i still didn't really feel much but as i was getting something to cover it up then whoa it started to hurt so it it took a little while it took a little while for everything to sense like whoa this guy just cut off his fingertip what happened here and there's a little bit of a delay there with that nociceptive signal but there's also a delay in my brain because at this point you know i, I my adrenaline's going i have to Stop the bleeding, I'm a little bit stressed out at this point, I'm very awake now, and I'm not necessarily processing all of this nociceptive information hitting me as pain. So I see it, it takes a solid couple of minutes before it really starts to hurt. And then it really hurt, um, quite excruciatingly, especially because I was slicing chili peppers which was leaving capsaicin on the blade so when i sliced my finger i introduced capsaicin into the cut and capsaicin is a trpv1 receptor agonist so it activates it so this is the same that's why chili peppers when you eat them they taste hot and when you slice your fingertip off and then basically intravenously (laughs) introduce capsaicin then that normally sensitized TRPV1 receptor complex due to the inflammatory soup that's now rushing in is also increasing the sensitivity to that small amount of capsaicin. So it was just excruciating and I couldn't figure out why it felt like my finger was burning and on fire and then I realized, oh, it's because of the capsaicin. And then in subsequent days, the pain persisted, but mostly When I would lightly tap my finger just against my hand or something, something, or just against a table, something you do very often, I discovered, because I was often bumping my finger into something very lightly, and it was excruciatingly painful, because it was just hitting these hypersensitive nerve endings that were there to help keep me safe. And and this makes a lot of sense because I don't want to be bumping my open wound against stuff all the time because then I'd be reinfecting it. I definitely don't want to be exposing it to high temperatures because there's no protective skin there. So that would be really bad too. So it makes a lot of sense that everything in that finger would be hypersensitive. Now this is also where it gets tricky and this is where the biggest conversation about pain will be about you have that acute pain of slicing my fingertip off or that acute nociceptive signal then a bit of a delay because I actually have to interpret what just happened and oh yeah okay that was bad that should hurt okay I'm getting all of those nociceptive signals okay yeah this hurts now this is painful so getting all of that in that acute stage then also keeping that pain there even after that acute injury and acute actual pain is gone why does that pain persist there's no active injury now going on I'm not re-injuring it there shouldn't be pain you have a
0: scab perhaps
1: I have a scab even now it's been a little while and it's healed and even now when I hit it against stuff it it hurts a lot more than if I hit my other finger against something. It's a really sharp, stinging pain, and it's because those nerves still are hypersensitive. And this is where pain gets problematic, too, because that's a nice protective factor. But when the injury is gone and you're no longer in danger, but now you have this lasting plastic change because the cells around it, the nerve endings, they all change and become more sensitive to pain, to mechanical stimulation, to cold, to heat, uh, to maybe changes in pH, if it stays like that for years, then you have chronic pain. So there's a lot of distinctions there. But the biggest thing is you have this acute injury that sends a bunch of messengers there and actually in that inflammatory soup, and this is maybe a little bit counterintuitive with a lot of the things we do with nootropics, but... Within that inflammatory soup, you have a lot of NGF, nerve growth factor. The reason this is in there is because the nerve growth factor actually is one of the things that makes those nociceptors more sensitive. So this is obviously a little bit controversial here because within nootropics, NGF is something we want to increase the level of because it can help enhance cognitive function, like with lion's mane. But
0: if you increase NGF then that also means that maybe you are increasing your body's capacity to uh, be sensitive to nociceptor messages. Uh, Correct. Which would mean that even though you're trying to supplement for the betterment of your mental state, perhaps, it may cause you to perceive pain more dramatically.
1: And this is something... So, perceiving pain more dramatically... That's, or, that's a little bit tricky still, sure. but, but let's keep it on the nociceptive side of things. You definitely have this thing called hyperalgesia. And this is basically what underlies the whole sensitization thing. It, it's hyperalgesia. The nociceptive signal is amplified because there are more nociceptors that can detect those signals and generate those signals and send those signals out. So if we have more ngf in that inflammatory soup then in theory we could create even stronger pain connections there more hyperalgesia so there is actually interestingly some research looking at antibodies that would attach to ngf and basically um, inactivate ngf and then ngf can't do this and they have found in certain studies that this is a good way of decreasing overall pain or overall nociception which in people experiencing that enhanced nociception are indicating pain and it seems like getting rid of some of this NGF is a good thing. This is a little bit confusing too because certain things that enhance NGF activity like acetyl-L-carnitine and lion's mane also have been shown to have beneficial effects on nerve pain so it's a bit of a double-edged sword too because if you have a nerve injury you also have to rebuild this nerve and to rebuild the nerve you need NGF but if you have NGF there then maybe the nerve hurts more so it's a bit of a delicate balance there I, I think if you are taking actually a lot of um, supplements that increase NGF you might not be ex- susceptible to more pain or more nociception but when when you experience it so let's say if you stub your toe then maybe the pain you perceive there is a little bit enhanced because your nociceptors work better but this is also interesting because ngf is crucial for those nociceptors working at all in the first place so if you don't have those nociceptors and you can't detect the world around you that's also a bad thing
0: 'Cause you'll always be stubbing your toe.
1: You'll always be stubbing your toe you'll and you'll always never be realize it. Getting
0: your hand on things, you you might be injuring yourself and not as able to protect yourself from potential threats.
1: Yeah, and and in some cases, genetically, some people are born without the ability to sense anything, including pain. And these people oftentimes end up in really tricky situations because if they break a bone and it's not obviously showing, then they have no idea because they can't sense it so having that ngf there and having proper nerve function is important but then when we injure ourselves if we could turn off the ngf switch really quick as we injured ourselves then in theory we would have much less lasting pain in the site of injury but to erica's earlier point it's a protective mechanism, you need it there, if I didn't have that in my fingertip and I kept banging my fingertip into the wall I might be bursting more sensitive blood vessels that aren't covered by an nice layer of skin, um, I might be reinfecting it, just not good for the healing process. So being reminded that hey you have an injury there, that's a good thing. The fact that it's now completely being closed for a month and it still hurts, that's a bad thing. So. Being able to get rid of that over time, over time your body won't necessarily detect that there's injury happening there and if everything goes according to plan, then over time my fingertip will get less and less sensitive to mechanical stimulation, because that seems to be the thing. Hot water is fine, but whatever mechanoreceptors were there, because I had a mechanical injury by cutting myself, I didn't burn myself, but I cut myself, I think because I had a mechanical injury, maybe a lot of those mechanoreceptors were sensitized in that fingertip, which is why I didn't necessarily have issues taking a shower, but I did have issues bumping against a wall. So mechanical stimulation was bad for me, and that's where I was sensitized. And that's where dealing with pain becomes pretty tricky too, because you have this temperature-based Um, pain and temperature-based hypersensitivity where an open wound would respond more strongly to air temperatures that are hot or taking a shower or something like that or mechanical stimulation but that also means that getting rid of that you need to actually address different types of receptors because to get rid of um, temperature-based pain or nociception we would uh, maybe even apply something like capsaicin, that which seems kind of counterintuitive. But if we have something like capsaicin, we can actually activate TRPV1 receptors to a really strong degree. And when we do that, the TRPV1 receptor desensitizes because it's getting overstimulated. And its protective mechanism then is to just desensitize itself, maybe even reduce the number, which is why Uh, certain sports type creams exist with capsaicin in it that you apply topically and then topical pain can go away because you have this PV1 receptor stimulation going on. And actually, as I'm doing this podcast right now, I have a bit of Tiger Balm on my neck because my neck was feeling a little sore. And in Tiger Balm, you have menthol and camphor. Those are the two main actives. Uh, menthol is an agonist at TRPM8, the cold-sensing receptor. So if you take a a mint, like an Altoid or something, and you suck on it for a while, then it will actually feel that your mouth is a little bit colder. And this cold sensation is because the menthol in the Altoids is activating the TRPM8 receptors. But as it's activating the TRPM8 receptors in a higher concentration, like in um, Tiger Balm applied topically, then the stimulation of TRPM8 is so intense that the TRPM8 receptor very quickly desensitizes. And then the pain caused maybe by activated TRPM8 receptors because of hyperalgesia happening there and the plastic changes, then that goes away. Camphor, on the other hand, Uh, I think also activates TRPM8 receptors but to a much lower degree. It also activates um, NAV 1.8 receptors which are voltage-gated sodium channels and it also activates TRPV1 receptors which are the heat receptors. So with TigerBomb you get this mix of heating and cooling which can then have a really nice temporary relief of what we experience as pain, so I'm getting nociceptive signals from my neck, then maybe those nociceptive signals are being driven by TRPM8, the sodium channel, the um, TRPV1, applying that then at first boost that activity so it actually does feel really uncomfortable when you first put it on. And then as it fades, it starts feeling nicer and nicer, so similar to submerging myself completely in cold water and going through that process. Or the same if you go into a sauna or a really hot bath, you see the same thing happen, and with all of those, you can actually um, get rid of certain pain. In fact, if I'm having really strong muscle pains or, or like shoulder pain or something like that, one thing I really like to do is take a contrast shower. So Put your shower up as hot as you can for maybe 30 seconds and really have those muscles heat up but as you're doing that with the really hot water hitting you you are also activating your trpv1 receptors and trpv2 trpv3 maybe even trp trpv4 uh, maybe some of the sodium gated or voltage gated sodium channels it's that's always a really hard one for me to say Uh, you're activating all of those with hot water, and that should be providing some relaxation and maybe a slight inflammation reduction effect too. Then when I switch to cold, I'm giving the TRPV1 receptors and all of the heat-sensitive ones a bit of a break, and then I'm hitting the cold receptors, the TRPM8 and the sodium-gated V1.8 channel, activating those then also has a a nice relaxing effect on my muscles and when I'm switching back and forth between them it actually really feels good and afterwards I have a period of maybe 30 minutes where my muscles feel more relaxed my pain perceived pain levels are down a little bit and saunas work in a similar way maybe an ice bath um, applying just a heat compress or a cold compress which is often done like if you bruise yourself putting some ice on it you are activating those TRPM8 receptors too or actually putting heat on it like a hot pack which also helps with pain both of which are activating these receptors that sense the world around us and we can manipulate it with something like Tiger Balm, um, even mints or capsaicin.
0: It's really amazing that there's there's a very straightforward answer as to why people use Tiger Balm or Icy Hot or some of these topical products for pain management because I was always confused about these uses. Um, you know, I think even not NyQuil. What am I thinking of? Um, Vicks Vapor Rub. That's another one that I'm thinking of too. These sort of temperature sensitive products. How do they actually help you address pain? Um, And my family was not like an Icy Hot or a Tiger Balm family. We didn't use any of these kinds of topical um, kind of pain relievers at all. So I don't have a ton of personal experience. And I was always a bit skeptical, just thinking, is this just a mental thing? Is it like the ritual of putting this on? Is it the smell? You know, is there actually any proof that this is going to help address pain at all? Without having used it much myself, I didn't know the answer. But now there is actually a very literal and obvious answer for this, which is exciting.
1: And I was always a little bit skeptical about it too because as a little kid, I always remember my grandma always being slathered in Tiger Bomb type stuff because she had a lot of pain and she would use this and um, heat lamps and things like that, all of which actually now that I know the science behind it, it makes sense. And she was actually able to manage her pain with very non-invasive things, even though she was experiencing a lot of pain, but she was never on really strong uh, pain-reducing regimens. So I was always quite amazed by this. I also think she was just a very tough woman that would never tell you if she was in pain. But on the other hand, I think frequent use of these things and she was doing a lot of acupuncture those mechanical stimulations because acupuncture works in a similar way it's hitting those mechanical uh, receptors that would respond to pain so similar to applying something like icy hot and desensitizing those um, heat and cold sensitive receptors doing it with something like acupuncture can also do a very similar thing so all of these combined strategies worked really well for her and it makes a lot of sense when you think about pain in this sensory realm and i think that's not something we often think about when we think about pain we don't think about it also being a sensory thing maybe it's just how oh, this sucks pain and and pain decreases your mood and it makes you more nervous about the world so makes it hard to focus makes it hard to focus so so there's a lot of things that pain influences that we're not aware of and there's a lot of underlying uh, mechanisms that we don't necessarily understand when it comes to pain but when you understand them you can actually manage pain in a more holistic way where you can actually take advantage of some of these topical things some of these um electrical, shocking things that you can put on you. Or I even have a um, spiky mat. It's like a a nail bed, like a modern nail bed. And I started experimenting with that a while ago. And similar to submerging myself in really cold water, the spiky mat at first is extraordinarily painful. All of the, the mechanical receptors are getting very strongly stimulated. And then after about two minutes or so, the pain starts to fade and it gets replaced by kind of nothingness and then after i get off of it i sometimes lay on it for 30 minutes even an hour if i just watch a tv show or something at the end of the hour i'm really not noticing any pain but if i'm having some back pain then the pain is usually not gone gone but it's reduced in severity a lot And this reduction lasts for quite a while. So actually acting on these concepts which produce pain, hyperactivating those with a nail bed or electrical stimulation or acupuncture or uh, heat exposure, cold exposure, uh, using topicals that activate these receptors, you, you can have a lot of benefit there. And I think a good way to demonstrate this through some home experiments you can actually do to really understand just how much this affects.
0: I'm quite curious to hear about these home experiments for pain, uh, but quickly I wanted to share an anecdote, something that I find kind of fascinating in my own experiences uh, with pain, and it's related to my hands. Um, and I have been playing stringed instruments for more than half of my life, um, bass and guitar and upright bass. And some of these instruments have more of a kind of pain threshold than others. I would say playing acoustic guitar is probably on the higher end, like it's more painful for my fingers, um, playing electric instruments of any kind is a little bit less painful. Um, but over time, my fingertips have become quite strong and desensitized to mechanical pain from playing these instruments. Um, and for a period of time, this is totally unrelated to, to music, but for a period of time, I was also a barista in a coffee shop and I was making lattes on a daily basis with very hot milk and checking temperature using my hands and my fingertips. So I've put my fingertips through A lot of different kinds of painful scenarios so much so to the point now where when I'm cooking I can take something out of a pan just with my hands or maybe even flip a piece of bacon with my fingers that's like actively cooking in a pot but I don't experience it as pain it doesn't feel like a a, a warning sign or a red flag to me and you know I make sure that I don't burn my hands on a regular basis I also have some calluses so that helps But I really don't experience a whole lot of pain anymore in my fingertips, I think, for this very reason. I've just exposed them to so much pain over so long that I just don't have that same sensitivity that other people do.
1: There's actually two things that could be going on there. So one of them is definitely that. um, And Erica has given me a guitar lesson in the past, and one thing I noticed is this actually really hurts on your fingertips, and at that point, Erika doesn't know anymore she's been playing for so long it doesn't really affect her anymore although you obviously have some memories of when it did hurt and it's that uh, the one thing why a guitar string hurts is because it's putting a lot of pressure on a small area because the string is very thin so I noticed that with the thicker strings it's okay but the thinner strings start to hurt more and more acutely at least because the thin string applies very Localized pressure in a very high amount in in a small area and and this hurts. Repeating that over and over, those mechanoreceptors are going to become less sensitive, so you are less sensitive to the pain effects. Or you could have something else ha- happen. So, like with repetitive stress injuries, let's say you're um, moving your elbow in a way that's not good while you're playing an instrument, which. Also, I think you've had some injuries there.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Having those repetitive stress injuries is, is a similar thing where you're doing the same thing over and over and instead of adapting to it and becoming more resilient to that pain, you actually have hypersensitivity because you're injuring the site over and over, you're getting more of that inflammatory soup, you're getting more NGF in that area, those nociceptors are becoming... Um, more plentiful, more better integrated, uh, more efficient at receiving and sending signals. And then you end up having long lasting pain there, which you then have to get rid of.
0: This is actually fascinating because now that I think of it, while my fingertips feel that they've become more resistant to uh, pain like mechanical and temperature type of pain responses, my elbow, which is where I was experiencing some nerve pain due to repetitive stress injury um, in the the ulnar nerve, exactly, um, I find that I do hit my funny bone, that's another name that people refer to that nerve by, more often now since I've had that kind of nerve injury. Like, I find myself getting surprised by or feelings of pain by hitting that area more than I think probably the average person and way more than on my other arm where I never had that nerve pain experience at all.
1: And one explanation of course could be that you're especially clumsy on your left arm, but that's probably not the case. And, And what's actually happening is that you have hypersensitized that nerve. So it's more likely to get activated and produce that ow kind of sensation when you bump it lightly, similar to how my fingertip was hypersensitized, because when I do the same kind of tapping that I was trying then to see what the pain level was at, now I don't feel anything. So you have this constant balance of sensitizing and desensitizing to different pain signals, and. I think musicians are a good example of it, especially because, you know, a lot of instruments do require some pretty weird body postures that could result in repetitive stress injuries, similar to people who play a lot of sports that could result in repetitive stress injuries that then cause hypersensitivity and hyperalgesia. Another explanation, however, could be that over time you have learned that that pain you are experiencing in your fingertips is not particularly damaging to your body. Mm -hmm. So... Your psychological interpretation of the pain is different. Absolutely. And there's a great pain podcast by Andrew Huberman too. Definitely go uh, watch that one. There's two different ones. Uh, I watched the the more recent one, and in there he gave an example of a construction worker who fell from I think he said it was the second story. He fell. And then as he was falling, he was looking down at his foot, and as he hit the ground, a nail, he saw a nail come through his boot, and he was shouting in excruciating pain because he saw this happen. Took him to the hospital, and then there they cut away his boot, and they found that the nail actually hadn't penetrated him at all. It just went through uh, where his toes were. So it completely missed him, it didn't injure him at all, and the extreme sensation of pain Quickly faded when he visually saw that there was nothing happening there. And this is kind of an interesting thing too that our vision is involved with pain, because let's imagine this construction worker hadn't seen that happen. Or maybe maybe was blind. <laughs> be kind of strange to have a blind construction worker maybe. Seems a little bit dangerous, but maybe he just never saw the nail there, even if it's sticking out of your boot, you're just walking around and you never see it. This person would have never experienced that pain, because the pain was purely visual. Seeing it, knowing that, hey, I know what happens if that if a nail goes through your foot, that should be really painful. So your brain interprets what it's seeing as, ow, that must be really, really painful right now, even though it isn't. And when you think about it like that too, in psychological states, then pain becomes a much more interesting and complex phenomenon too. But before we get too far into that, let's circle back real quick to this home experiment. So if you really want to, know what some of these signaling or what these receptors what they're picking up and how you perceive that then you can go through a list of a few very easy to get culinary ingredients so the first would be go get yourself some altoids or even just brush your teeth because in a lot of toothpaste there's pretty high concentration of menthol which this is pretty funny too if you if you chew gum or you take a a mint or you brush your teeth, one thing that you always experience is a feeling of refreshment, like your mouth is cooler. But it's not. It's just those TRPM8 receptors are now being activated by menthol, and that is giving you the illusion that your mouth has cooled down and that basically you now have a little air conditioner in your mouth.
0: So those Listerine strips that are really, really strong and make your mouth feel super cold have a lot of that compound right that's going to activate those receptors
1: correct that compound m- menthol is one there's a few other ones that are even stronger than menthol um but menthol is the most common one uh, eucalyptol and eucalyptus also does a similar thing but but menthol is a is an easy one to get your hands on it's in toothpaste those listerine strips even some some mouthwash so before you do any of that get a really cold glass of water ice water take a sip of that kind of notice what that feels like in your mouth let your mouth warm up a little bit again and now consume something that has some menthol in it or have something that has menthol in it around your mouth don't consume mouthwash and toothpaste spit that out please
0: (laughs) don't swallow it don't swallow
1: (laughs) it so have that swish around your mouth and then see How similar is that sensation to the sensation of cold water in your mouth? And it's somewhat similar. But your mouth isn't any colder. It's the same exact temperature. It's just that these receptors that normally get activated by cold water now are getting activated by menthol. So you have a similar situation going on. Then when you drink the cold water after you've brushed your teeth, or had something with menthol in it, then the water, the really, really cold water, is almost painful. And especially, I notice it if I've eaten like some really strong mints and then I swallow some water, it hurts almost going down my esophagus.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, sometimes it can feel a little bit painful for me in my teeth. Like I become sensitive to the, the super, super cold all of a sudden.
1: And this is because Cold water by itself is activating these receptors, which we are then perceiving as cold. Menthol is activating these receptors, which we are then receiving as cold, perceiving as cold. But then when we combine them, and especially if we do menthol first, then the menthol is activating those TRPM8 receptors. So then cold water has an easier time activating those additional TRPM8 receptors. So basically, menthol sensitizes those TRPM8 receptors briefly so then when you drink cold water the cold water tastes way colder and almost painful whereas before you drank the cold water was fine it wasn't necessarily painful it was just nice and cold and refreshing and now it's painful a similar thing happens with this plasticity effect where your nociceptors become hypersensitive to stimuli that otherwise normally wouldn't hurt. So this is a great experiment to see what exactly the, the cold sensation does. On the opposite side, you can just consume some some hot, hot sauce or a chili pepper or whatever your tolerance is, you can go higher or lower, but the higher the concentration of capsaicin in the chili pepper. So let's say if you take a jalapeno or a habanero, The jalapeno will feel quite hot, it will actually feel like you have something hot in your mouth. With a habanero, it can feel like you have something excruciatingly hot in your mouth. It can be kind of scary the first time you eat a whole habanero, it can give you a bit of a panicky feeling like there's something seriously wrong in your mouth because it feels like you have a hot coal in your mouth almost but this is hitting the trpv1 receptor so you can really feel that similarly if you've had some chili pepper and now you drink um, maybe some coffee or tea a hot tea the tea the temperature of the tea feels hotter again because the trpv1 receptors are getting activated by the capsaicin so there's more of that activity going on too So then when you add hot water on top, which is also activating TRPV-1 receptors, then you get this additive effect on TRPV-1 and you become sensitized to heat. Same thing happens again with an injury. Um, Then you can start doing something really interesting. You can combine Szechuan pepper, which produces a tingly numbing sensation with capsaicin and just szechuan by itself it especially green szechuan which is especially numbing it can be kind of concerning feeling because your whole mouth goes numb it's tingly it's a really weird sensation it
0: almost gives you a slightly sour taste in your mouth as well yes
1: but the interesting thing is that it also blocks the voltage-gated sodium channels especially 1.7 and also a little bit 1.8 so it also desensitizes us to the effects of capsaicin because capsaicin also produces a bit of this pain effect together with trvp1 through this um, we can actually abbreviate the voltage-gated sodium channel to nav so let's just go with that from now on so nav 1.7 if you block that or if you activate that, then you experience more pain. You get hypersensitive to pain. When you block it, the opposite happens. And one of the compounds in session1 pepper that is numbing, uh, hydroxy alpha sensual, and there's a bunch of different sensuals, but that seems to be one of the, the strongest ones. It is an inhibitor here. And it's also activating the TRPA1 receptor, and it's also interacting with the TRPV1 uh, receptor. So it... It hits a lot of them and it actually blocks nociception really well and this is a really fascinating effect and and it also seems to be regulated through a potassium channel so there's a lot of things going on that's producing this numbing and tingly effect with Sichuan pepper but when you combine Sichuan pepper with a lot of capsaicin kind of in equal amounts i think then the spiciness, the heat experience from capsaicin is drastically diminished. And it's because the hydroxy alpha sensual is actually blocking the nociceptive signal that's being sent out from this TRPV1 receptor activation. You can have a lot of fun with this in cooking because you can actually use way more chili peppers and balance it out with the Szechuan pepper and then have this really rapid if you're eating and you continue to eat then the heat builds up builds up builds up till it gets really you experience a lot of heat and then you stop eating and the heat kind of drops away whereas normally with chili pepper you would be experiencing the heat for a long time after you take a bite with um high amounts of the sensuals and capsaicin the effect is more like wasabi where you get this big waft of pungency and then it's gone so actually wasabi again it hits the trpa one receptor and this is what gives you that oh pungent feeling almost in your nose really quick mm-hmm. and this is uh, a receptor that normally detects chemical noxious stimuli so This also underlies a lot of airway respiration, pain and inflammation and issues there, because it's detecting stuff in the air and it's getting hyperactivated and then it's causing issues there.
0: This makes me think about uh, the feeling of eating fresh ginger or horseradish and the similarities to, um, to wasabi actually.
1: Yeah, and actually, most wasabi that we eat is more of like a horseradish that's being colored green. Um, actual wasabi root is similar to uh, horseradish. They the, the root looks somewhat similar. They could ta- contain a lot of the same compounds.
0: It's really tasty and very very delicate. It still has that powerful sensation when you when you eat it, uh, but it's different than a lot of just the the normal sushi restaurant wasabi that you might have experienced in the past.
1: But both of them definitely have similar levels of this like pungency mm-hmm. and it's because of compounds called isothiocyanates and, and these are these volatile compounds that can briefly activate these TRPA1 receptors and then cause this almost painful sensation. But now we can come back a little bit to how do we actually interpret this pain and with this construction worker falling and seeing the nail and the visual thing there and they're not being pain but experiencing pain we can also look at people who have had amputations who now experience phantom limb pain also very fascinating and and it sounds like a terrible thing to have happen to you but it is a very fascinating thing on a neurological and psychological level for how we perceive pain because these people are experiencing pain in a limb that just isn't there anymore it, there's nothing there but they are still experiencing pain and this is also has to do with how all of these nerves exist in the body and for example you have way more of these nerves in your lips uh, and in your hands than you do on your back, for example. So you are more sensitive to touch in your hands, but also more sensitive to pain there. But a lot of these nerves also are a little bit intermixed and carry each other's signals. And this is where sometimes wires can kind of cross a little bit. And then you have this this phantom pain as well. And one of the ways to solve it is by using a, a visual trick where I believe it's a, a mirror in a box. And then you can see your other hand on your the hand where the phantom limb is supposed to be. I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy on the details at this point, but that seems to get rid of some of the phantom pain that's there. So there's definitely a big psychological component to pain. And there was also actually a very interesting study looking at soldiers that had been injured out on the battlefield and civilians that had been injured just in their normal everyday life. And the soldiers... And the civilians, they had the same severity of injuries. However, the civilians reported more pain than the soldiers did. And we could argue that the soldiers have just experienced more pain, so they're a little bit more used to it. Another way to think about it is that the soldiers were in a different psychological state. For them, it was a big victory. Even though they are injured, they're alive and they get to go home. Whereas for civilians, there's no victory at all. It just, it all sucks. Uh, I broke my arm. Now I can't go to the gym anymore. I can't lift my groceries. Or in your case, I sliced
0: the tip of my finger off. Now I can't cook for a week and Exactly. I can't carry things. And it's hard for me to, you know, open a container or
1: brush my teeth with the hand I typically like to use and even in the example of the construction worker had he really had this nail puncture through his foot he probably couldn't have worked for a while so that would have been a major inconvenience too and that psychological distress would add to the perception of pain but on the flip side too prolonged pain can then also produce psychological symptoms and part of this is because your quality of life just goes down but there's also actual neurological basis for this. Your GABAergic tone changes a little bit, your uh, glutamatergic activity changes. So pain actually has negative cognitive and mental well-being outcomes too. On the flip side, then again, negative mental states can also have a bad impact on the perception of pain, which is why I think... Again and again, we are getting back to this point where handling pain is a very multifaceted approach. There's mechanical stimulation you can do, there's chemical stimulation you can do, um, there's psychological uh, interventions that can be done where just thinking about the pain in a different light, thinking about it more positively, could be beneficial. Maybe the soldier is doing that. Maybe a civilian could do that too. For me, it was, well, at least I didn't chop off my whole finger. It could have been worse. Having that mindset can then actually also help reduce pain. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky here. Uh, Hypnosis is a really interesting thing because... Hypnosis does actually seem to work, and I haven't really tried it for myself, but apparently there's a, an, an app, I think it's called Reverie. Again, it's something that uh, Andrew Huberman talked about in his podcast. Hypnosis, you can even self-hypnotize yourself, apparently, on this app, um, and this can help you process pain but obviously it's not actually doing anything for the site of injury. It's more of a psychological help getting you in a different mindset to reframe the pain maybe in a more positive light. And that seems to be a good way to attenuate pain. But we now have talked a lot about what pain is. I think we can definitely go a little bit deeper in there, but pain is such a complex thing. I think we just kind of cut it off now. We understand that we get these nociceptive signals and we interpret them as pain and we understand that we have plastic changes after injury and we understand that inflammation hypersensitizes the nociceptive neurons so if we decrease inflammation now then the opposite happens the neurons the nociceptive neurons become less sensitive to these noxious stimuli so using supplements the real meat probably of what you're all waiting for is what supplements can we actually use and what approaches can we use with supplements and maybe different lifestyle factors that can help manage pain and there's a lot that can be done actually
0: this is really exciting because even though there's always more to learn about pain and how it works and how we perceive it um, I do feel like I have a totally new and much deeper understanding of where the feelings of pain come from, and also acknowledging the very important differences between mechanical pain and temperature-based pain, Um, and then, you know, as we're going to get into a little bit now how certain lifestyle choices and how uh, the way that we care for ourselves on a daily basis can really impact the way that we perceive pain, even in acute situations.
1: Absolutely. And that's where we can really start relying on some of the stuff we just learned and how to manipulate this with supplements. So let's start with the lowest hanging fruit. We injure ourselves, inflammation goes up. When inflammation goes up, we become more sensitive to nociceptive signals and we perceive more pain. So if we decrease inflammation, then we get the opposite effect and we get a, a pain management effect.
0: And one of the most uh, typically recommended supplements that, that we uh, talk to people about and that we recommend to people who are looking for pain management, uh, just generally speaking, is curcumin.
1: Yeah. And curcumin is a great example because it is really good at reducing various different elements of that inflammatory soup. So when we talk about inflammation, we have to consider that we are talking about prostaglandins, we are talking about interleukins, we are talking about cytokines, we are talking about things like tumor necrosis factor. And when we talk about something that decreases inflammation it's usually decreasing a lot of these different factors so a a big thing actually that curcumin does is it blocks an enzyme called cox-2 and cox-2 produces a lot of the prostaglandins so when we block cox-2 then we have less prostaglandins we have less of these very highly inflammatory compounds floating around in the inflammatory soup and then we get much more sensitive to nociceptive signals so if we just take that out of the equation and we block COX-2 and we get less prostaglandins, then that has a really positive effect on the overall inflammation around the injury site and around these um, nociceptive neurons that can then transmit signals to our brain that we perceive as pain. So this is one of the reasons why curcumin is a is a great thing to take for pain and for specifically inflammation induced pain. We have a couple different formulations there too. We won't get into that too much here, but if you take one of the higher bioavailability ones like Long Vida or even uh White, those are really good at just providing a baseline for lower levels of inflammation, which will help you with pain. Another one of my favorites for reducing overall inflammation is Andrographis paniculatus. It has a very strong inflammation regulating effects also has effects on COX-2 and actually COX-1 and some of the other direct uh, mechanisms that increase expression and uh, release of these interleukins and cytokines can reduce that directly. So andrographis is a fantastic one there and andrographis activates the TRPV4 receptor which we talked about a little bit earlier too is one of the temperature sensitive and mechanical sensitive receptors, specifically responding to cellular pressure. And when we activate TRPV4 with something like uh, the andrographolites that are present in andrographis, then one, we get this. Uh, so I, I should explain when the TRPV4 receptor actually senses pressure, it does release Uh, inflammation regulating compounds and oxidation regulating compounds one of them actually being melatonin which interestingly enough melatonin could actually be good for overall pain too because it is a good oxidation regulating compound which plays a role with the cytokines in the whole inflammatory soup as well and it inhibits the NLRP3 inflammasome, I think is what it's called, and that has an inflammation-regulating effect too. But you can get this from andrographis, because andrographis, by activating the TRPV4 receptors initially, will then increase melatonin synthesis. You'll have melatonin in more places. That will have a positive effect. But over time, andrographis will desensitize the TRPV4 receptors, which means that they can send less nociceptive signals which would then over time have a pain reducing effect similar to if you were to eat a lot of capsaicin over time your trpv4 receptors would become desensit trpv1 receptors sorry would become desensitized a little bit so through that strategy through desensitizing some of these nociceptive receptors and neurons you can decrease pain because there's less nociceptive signal being sent out. So for those reasons, Andrograph is one of my favorite ones for pain with inflammation in mind and the TRPV4 effect in mind. Some other really interesting ones, and we haven't really talked about the the positive regulators of pain and, and how we perceive pain. So we actually dopamine plays a big role there Uh, adrenaline plays a big role there and that also plays a role in how we mentally process these signals coming in and this is also interesting to think about with capsaicin because and just trpv1 stimulation in general when you activate the trpv1 receptor you see dopamine levels go up and these dopamine levels could have a pain reducing effect not because it's reducing the nociceptive signal it's because it is changing how we perceive the nociceptive signal so we perceive less pain perhaps so dopamine plays a big role there serotonin also plays a big role there so increasing serotonin is often also a strategy that is employed for managing pain not necessarily for dopamine, I think. And if you look at certain compounds that strongly activate the 5-HD2A receptor, you're probably all smart enough to know what compounds those are, I won't mention them here, but when you activate 5-HD2A receptors, you have a reduction in pain as well. And part of this is definitely the mental processing of those pain signals coming in. So serotonin plays a role, norepinephrine plays a role, A lot of the adrenergic receptors play a role. And that kind of lands us actually at agmatine. And that will transition us into the NMDA theory too. So with agmatine, uh, if you read the examine.com page on agmatine, it's basically all about pain. It really hyped up agmatine as a bit of a miracle for pain. So let's get into that a little bit. Why is it so interesting? The reason it is interesting is because it makes it so that other pain reducing strategies work better because we become more sensitive to those pain reducing strategies and part of this is actually how agmatine interacts with adrenergic receptors so turning adrenergic receptors on and off can change how we perceive pain so this is one big pathway that agmatine follows but Another pathway that Agmatine follows is by acting as an NMDA antagonist and some very famous pain management compounds, which again, I will not mention, but if you've been paying attention recently, you probably know what one of the more popular NMDA antagonists is that also has a pain mediating effect. Anyways, blocking NMDA receptors has an effect on how we process pain as well. And this mostly comes down to calcium so calcium also plays a really important role in pain similar to how sodium plays an important role in pain because of the nav receptors the nav 1.7 and nav 1.8 receptors which we talked about extensively earlier calcium there's also a lot of calcium channels and calcium receptors that play a big role in pain and when there's more calcium available and these calcium-based mechanisms are in action then we perceive more pain. So when we block NMDA receptors we reduce this calcium activity in these calcium channels and by doing this we can reduce our perception of pain. And this is actually these calcium channel blockers are also a really popular avenue of research just looking at directly blocking those and there are a few things that can actually do that and one of those things is kava and i actually find that kava has a really interesting pain management effect and it gets pretty complex here because kava contains monoamine oxidase inhibitors so we are getting more dopamine we are getting more serotonin and we are getting more norepinephrine all three of which are involved with the subjective processing of pain so when we increase those, our pain perception is changing and it's making us perceive less pain already. Moving on from there, it also has an effect on NMDA receptors, so certain cava lactones have very mild NMDA-blocking effects, that's not a big part of it, but cava itself is blocks calcium channels. So it doesn't even have to go through the NMDA blockade effect, it does it more directly. So it can decrease overall calcium signaling, which can have a positive effect on pain. In addition to that, CAVA also increases GABAergic tone. And because GABAergic neurons uh, inhibit certain Uh, other neurons so this is the the big function of GABA actually it's to act as the brake for different neurons and receptors so it will inhibit them and it can actually inhibit these nociceptive neurons too so
0: I didn't know that yeah that's amazing
1: which I think also explains why when I drink a little bit too much alcohol I have quite a bit of increased pain the next day and it's because alcohol it mostly activates GABA but it is also a pretty strong NMDA antagonist so the next day you have lower GABAergic tone and higher NMDA tone which means more calcium and less inhibitory tone so it makes it easier to perceive pain with a hangover.
0: That is really interesting it also makes me wonder Does GABA reduce the perception of pain when you are drinking, like let's say you injure yourself while drinking? Is it GABA that's responsible for that reduction or is it some other mechanism?
1: It's both GABA and NMDA antagonism, which is why ah. alcohol was one of the first anesthetics used in surgeries, and this is one of the reasons. And
0: Makes sense. Yeah,
1: it, which is why it's funny sometimes you see in those hardcore, like, old cowboy movies or even newer movies where someone gets shot and then they need to get a bullet removed or something, they very cavalierly chug a bottle of whiskey and then they're all knocked out and but it's really because GABA and NMDA intact GABAergic activation and NMDA antagonism has very profound effects on how we process pain the perception of pain doing this on a lower level though uh, with something like Clermag as we talked about earlier Clermag was designed to inhibit the NMDA receptors because magnesium blocks NMDA receptors. So having good magnesium status also helps um, with pain management because you perceive pain a little bit less because that calcium tone is down a little bit too. So focusing on keeping NMDA activity in, t- in check is a nice strategy. Keeping calcium channel activity in check is, an, is a nice strategy and with this something like cava and especially maybe cava plus Clermag would be a really good combination because you are hitting these direct mechanisms that make us perceive pain in addition to this cava also has really good inflammation lowering effects and has good effects on oxidation so overall cava cava actually is one of my favorite pain reducers it, it really, especially if I'm having more nerve pain or more headachey, y migraine type pain, then this is something that works well for me um, because it hits a lot of those different aspects. And most importantly, it makes me feel good. And I think being in a more relaxed, almost a little bit of a euphoric mental state makes me less concerned about the pain.
0: That makes sense. There's more than just the healing of the injury or getting getting rid of some of that inflammatory soup that can have uh, a difference when you're experiencing pain. Um, my brother was recently um, in the hospital and he was experiencing a lot of pain and he received a get well soon package from our mom and it's, it's funny because... Of course, a get well soon package isn't going to contain medicine of any kind, and it's not going to contain tools for, you know, actually uh, solving or fixing the source of the pain. But receiving a, a gift and something that is meant to be comforting, and you know, a gesture like this, this can actually have somewhat of a profound effect on how we perceive pain, and and having that sense of hope and connection, and you know, knowing that someone is thinking of us and acknowledging our pain, I think is a, a surprisingly effective way of dealing with pain as you're healing, perhaps. And so when we talk about it more acutely, like in the case of supplements, um, or in the case of kava, or, you know, when you are really young, or if you have children and when they hurt themselves... You know, you might kiss the place where it's hurting to make it feel better. It's not that that's going to heal the injury or the issue or take away the pain completely, but it definitely changes our understanding of what it means to experience these feelings, and that if someone else is aware of it, it's a little bit less bad than when we have to deal with it just by ourselves.
1: Exactly. And and this just comes back to the fact that pain, as we know it, is a real subjective experience. and gets amplified within our brain and gets amplified by our mood or it gets turned down by our mood if we feel a little bit better then we are likely better equipped at dealing with the fact that we are injured and in pain or even have long-lasting pain even though there's no injury there and we know it really shouldn't be happening and it's frustrating and it's annoying if you kind of get out of that mindset and you think about it more positively and you proactively try and do something about it maybe do some foam rolling that's a mechanical stimulation take a cold shower a hot shower put some tiger balm on it kind of one getting your psychological state better and two directly hitting where the pain is and manipulating the actual factors that send out these nociceptive signals that we are interpreting as pain so again i think it really comes back to dealing with pain is a very multifaceted approach and this is honestly why uh, Kava is one of my favorite pain management supplements, because it does such a good job of putting you in a good mental state, and it has some underlying direct effects on uh, the mechanisms of nociception. So this is a really good one. Um, and for me, if I take kava it also makes music more enjoyable and music also makes me forget about the pain it also makes a tv show a little bit more enjoyable so for me dealing with pain like that it's a i think maybe one of the most important aspects is that i can mentally process it well and i'm in a good mood and i'm relaxed and i'm not worried about it and i'm not trying to overstretch it and and then risk re-injuring myself. And you're
0: also not dwelling on the pain either.
1: Exactly. So with that in mind, definitely don't forget about the psychological aspect of it. Another thing that CAVA does is it activates both the CB1 and CB2 cannabinoid receptors. And these receptors also play a big role in pain processing. And this is also where endogenous factors come in. So our body also produces compounds that can activate the CB1 and CB2 receptors. One of these compounds is palmitoylethanolamide, PEA, which we actually sell as a supplement too, because you can take PEA and build up your PEA levels over time. And then because it is an endocannabinoid and it's interacting with CB1 and CB2 and uh, FAV, which is an enzyme that breaks down... Uh, endogenous cannabinoids like anandamide or 2-AG by blocking that with PEA because PEA also gets metabolized by it you can up your endocannabinoid or your cannabinergic tone which then also has a positive effect on how we perceive pain and how these nociceptive signals are sent out especially when we hit the CB2 receptors actually because CB2 receptors also increase opiodergic tone a little bit. So we also have these things called endorphins that act on opioid type receptors. And this can also reduce our perception of pain and even interact with the nociceptive signal sending. And another good one here would then be REFL, um, which is a microencapsulated formulation of beta karyophylline which is a terpene, and this terpene activates CB2 receptors. And because of the downstream effects of CB2 receptor activation, this can have a positive effect on pain too. Um, I
0: personally love REFL. This is one that I really like to take um, just in general for inflammation purposes. And I find that when I'm taking it frequently, it definitely just takes my inflammation down, like, overall, regardless of the activity that it might be coming from.
1: Absolutely. REFL is also one of my favorites, especially with curcumin. And REFL itself, as Erica mentioned, also has direct inflammation-reducing effects in addition to those CB2 effects. And especially taking a more uh, multi-pronged approach there, if you take something like REFL with palmitoyl ethanolamide, which palmitoyl ethanolamide also interacts with histamine and it interacts directly with inflammation as well and some other pathways that are not directly related to the endocannabinoid system that also have uh, pain management effects so pa is a really good one especially for long-term use raffle is a really nice one there too hitting on those endocannabinoid pathways and as we were talking about with the endorphins and those opiodergic Uh, pathways that are also in nociceptive neurons. There's uh, opioid receptors there. So when we activate those with endogenous opioids like the endorphins, then we also send less strong nociceptive signals, which has a positive effect on pain processing. And one supplement that has an effect here is DL-phenylalanine, which is a precursor actually to dopamine production, specifically L-phenylalanine the other dextro phenylalanine that is not a dopamine precursor however it is an enkephalinase inhibitor and enkephalinase breaks down these endorphins these endogenous opioids that can help reduce pain perception so when we block enkephalinase with the d portion of dl phenylalanine then we can reduce our perception of pain in addition to that the L phenylalanine portion is enhancing dopamine synthesis, and because dopamine helps us process pain mentally a little bit differently, D L phenylalanine as a whole has a really comprehensive effect on how we perceive and manage pain. And it's actually a really popular one that's taken by a lot of people. And if we keep going in the amino acid, because d phenylalanine is an amino acid, Uh, Area. Then another really interesting one is is acetyl-L-carnitine. Acetyl-L-carnitine is a bit of an interesting case. And it's interesting because it has effects on nerve growth factor, but it actually increases nerve growth factor. But in people, especially with nerve injuries, it seems like acetyl-L-carnitine helps with nerve-related pain which is kind of interesting to think about because it's also interacting with nerve growth factor and it's probably helping with nerve health because it's interacting with nerve growth factor. But it seems to have an effect and I've seen this effect happen in uh, a friend of mine too. So it does really seem to work. And in that similar vein, actually our super B12 that we just released, B12 also has an effect on how our nerves perceive pain and send uh, nociceptive signals so b12 especially if you're a little bit deficient taking extra b12 is also a good strategy in addition to something like acetyl l-carnitine which is enhancing nerve health and um, lion's mane is a good one there too because lion's mane contains compounds that enhance ngf activity but also lion's mane seems to have a positive effect on pain perception. This might be because it seems that some of the irinocines and haricinones uh, act on the kappa opioid receptor at a low level, and this might have a pain management effect too, but it's a little bit too early to say there. I think more research needs to be done, but especially when dealing with nerve-related pain Something that actually enhances nerve growth factor seems to be positive, and I'm I'm not entirely sure why yet. But anecdotally, this seems to be a good strategy. So moving on from there, we've we've covered quite a few. We've covered inflammation. We've covered the cannabinoid system. Um, we've a little bit of the opioid system. A little bit of the opioid system. We did the the calcium channels. We did some of the. Well, we haven't talked much about the sodium channels, and that's because we don't really have much that blocks the sodium channels. Except, actually, now that I think about it, kava has a numbing effect, and it has a numbing effect because it inhibits some of these voltage-gated sodium channels. So, kava does work there, but going more back to something we can maybe do in our diet... from Sichuan peppers seems to have a really profound effect on just full out blocking the nociceptive signal from going out to begin with so maybe increasing your Sichuan pepper consumption in your food if you like that flavor profile especially with some capsaicin for the TRPV1 effects and how they play nicely together with their mala flavor profile that that's a nice one to include in your diet too because it could have a really interesting effect especially long term on pain perception. But I think we have a pretty solid understanding now of what we can do for pain. We can increase a lot of different systems. We want to take multifaceted approaches. We want lifestyle factors to change. We want maybe dietary factors to change. We, We want to take certain supplements. We want to be in a nice mental state. Maybe also acting mechanically on them increasing heat de- decreasing heat exposing yourself to a lot of cold or
0: getting a massage getting perhaps.
1: a massage even because that's mechanical stimulation i like to foam roll uh, and i really like the spiky mat so i would recommend those things to really trying to hit it from multiple different angles and realizing that oftentimes more dull lasting pain maybe there isn't something really that wrong and it's just that those nerves are still hypersensitive from an injury
0: and the memory of of pain and pain that is experienced is something that takes time to uh to get fuzzier and and kind of fade into the background as well absolutely awesome this has been a really fascinating conversation and one that I was looking forward to and wasn't exactly sure what to expect out of, but I feel inspired because not only do I understand more of where my pain comes from, just in terms of the mechanisms in my own body, but I also understand pain even more as a protective mechanism against injury and against, uh, you know, potential dangers and threats that exist in the world. Um, but pain can also exist because of just everyday activity and it's a natural part of life. And depending on how and our we body need is, it.
1: exactly, we, we really, really need it. If we can't sense pain, we are in serious trouble. Because if you think about it, I mean, I experience pain on a daily basis because I'm pretty clumsy. So I'm constantly stubbing my toes, slicing my fingertips <laughs> off. But I'm very happy that I can feel that. Because if I didn't, I would be a complete mess. Uh, I would never know when to stop slicing my fingertips off, or when the tap water at my new place, which seems to go so hot it can boil my hands, I wouldn't be able to feel that. I would just maybe, I guess, look at the the visuals of my hands turning red. But the you pain need is
0: there for a reason.
1: Yeah, and yeah. and even if the pain isn't there, the fact that the sensory modalities that we have that allow us to feel pain also allow us to experience the world in a really rich sensory way is fascinating to think about.
0: Absolutely. And with all of that being said, uh, we are really excited to be sharing more information with you in different formats, both with the In Search of Insight podcast, as well as um, some additional materials that we're going to be releasing online. So if you're subscribed to our newsletter or if you follow along with us on Reddit um, at r slash you will get all of the information as soon as it's available. Um, One change that we've made to this month's podcast and podcasts moving forward is that we are no longer answering questions from Reddit in the podcast itself, but we are always excited to talk to you and discuss new research and ideas and supplements um, on our subreddit, that's r slash Nootropics Depot. And we're very curious to hear your thoughts and questions about today's fantastic conversation that we've had about pain. So if there's a question that you have brewing, or if there is research that you'd like to share on this topic um, or any of the supplements that we've discussed please tag us on reddit and start a conversation because we want to learn from you and we're so grateful to be able to share knowledge and research and insights with you through the in search of insight podcast so without further ado that's all we have for you this month thank you so much for listening and for sharing this podcast with your friends And uh, if you'd like, you can check out chapters on YouTube, on Spotify, and on Apple to learn a little bit more and go back and listen again to different parts of the podcast. So with that, we will say bye for now.
1: See ya.